The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in March 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we say hello to Walter Bobby. Hi, Walter. Hi, John. How are you? I'm How good. Are you're, you? you're a man who wears many, many hats. Listed as a director, a performer, a writer, a creator of shows, a Tony Award winner. Let me just review a couple quick things about your bio, then we'll, we'll get started. Uh, you made your Broadway debut playing Roger in Greece, the original Greece back in 1972. You Do played we have to mention dates? <laughs> <laughs> oh, every date. Okay. <laughs> uh, you, in the revival of Guys and Dolls some 20 years after that. Uh, played Nicely Nicely Johnson. You created and directed A Grand Night for Singing, a, a review of Rodgers and Hammerstein's music. Uh, Chicago, you directed that and won the Tony Drama Desk Award and the Outer Critics Circle Award. Uh, directed and uh, uh, Footloose, and had a Tony nomination for that for the book. Uh, 20th Century Revival, Sweet Charity, those are just the Broadway credits. Uh, the very recent show that's appeared in a couple cities, Irving Berlin's White Christmas. Also, you've been the former artistic director of City Center's Encore series here in New York, where you directed the first show, as I recall. Fiorella was yes. your first presentation, yes. like 13 years ago? I guess so, yeah. Something like that, yeah. yeah. this is, what, the 13th or 14th it season? Is, oh, I'd have to... I haven't thought about that. Something, think, something yeah, like that, uh, yeah, but it, yes. it's, a, been a it's been a while. And that brings us to the, the present, a show that's coming up, actually... Yeah, it's the 13th th- season, yeah. I guess. Anyhow, a show that's coming up in about a week or so, a little Irving Berlin Moss Hart show that you're one of the two stars in, you and Judy Kay. Yes. And you're back at City Center for encores. On stage this time. On stage as a performer. face the music, yes. Right. How how does that feel, being back into what was once your home in the sense of being the former artistic director, now you're a performer out on the stage, you've directed there, your show Chicago from City Center transferred to Broadway, you directed that. Mm How does it feel to be back working at City Center again? Oh, it feels great. I mean, it's never stopped being my home. Uh, I directed the first show. I was then asked to be the artistic director. And uh, even after Chicago took over my life and I couldn't could no longer hold on to that position because we were so busy that once Chicago hit Broadway, we were in uh, doing tours in London and Australia almost immediately. But I've since been back to direct a couple of more shows at Encores. I'm uh, an artistic associate there. I'm still on the board. So I've never really left Encores. I also did The Bash a couple of years ago as a performer. And I think two or three years ago, Jerry Zachs asked me to do Bye Bye Birdie. So I Uh performed at Encores once before. Well, during my daily program, I frequently mention Encores. I frequently play songs from the various productions that have been recorded. And then Mm -hmm. on this program, Howard and I frequently talk to people who've been involved with Encores. But for a lot of our listeners who've never been to New York, never seen an Encores presentation, why don't you just explain what the premise of Encores is, what City Center has done with that that show? Encores subtitle, if you will, originally was... uh, concerts of great american musical great american musicals in concert and and the uh the mandate or the objective of the of the of the series was to present a lot of musicals that were either lost or were unlikely to be revived but were written by american masters to really pass on a great musical theater legacy to new generations of people who didn't know the uh the Works the lesser works by Irving Berlin, Gershwin, Bernstein, on and on, Lerner and Lowe, and um, and to do them in a concert format because, as we all know, the economics of Broadway right now to do a a Broadway show is at least eight million dollars to twelve million dollars. There's a great there's a great musical heritage. There's a great art that we are having a hard time passing on to people, not just in books or as legacy or as recordings, but actually to see it live in the theater. Um, the opera seems to be structured in a way that the great masterpieces get passed on from not just generation to generation, but century to century. We don't have that we don't have that kind of model in the musical theater, except for the classics. You know, someone will always do Oklahoma. Someone will always do My Fair Lady. But it is unlikely that you'll ever see, um, uh, you know, Face the Music by Irving Berlin or uh, Call Me Madam by Irving Berlin. Uh, these shows are very, very hard to revive in full-scale productions. So what Encores does is that it does these shows very quickly in concert. The actors are actually still holding scripts because they only have a week's rehearsal. But what you do here are the original orchestrations, 
with as many as 30 or 32 musicians, very, very full-bodied orchestra, larger than you get on Broadway these days, a full chorus and the original vocal arrangements. For example, when we did Bye Bye Birdie, you go back and you look at that score. There were there were 52 people in that show originally. Those mm-hmm. kinds of things can't happen in the economics of Broadway right now. But if you do, say, Cole Porter's Out of This World, which we did, and the orchestrations call for 32 musicians and two harps and encores, we actually give you that. So that you get to hear these things as they are originally devised, as they are originally put together, orchestrated, vocally arranged by the, origi- uh, by the original team. And the orchestrators, in most cases, up until recently, it's been Rob Fisher, who for years was a musical director, really did a lot of research into restoring the scores, finding the old yeah. music, well, much yeah, of which Rob, had disappeared. Yeah, Rob was, uh, Rob was our musical director, not our orchestrator, our musical director, and, mm-hmm. and but he has an incredibly uh, uh, deep and vast knowledge of the orchestrators of uh, 20th century popular music, um, not just in the theater, but of popular music. He's really kind of a, a, a scholar in that regard. And when we go back to these scores, some of them are sitting in a box somewhere, and you and you pull them out and you play them, some of them really need a lot of uh, restoration. And we actually have developed a restoration fund over at Encores where when we get to some of those scores and, and, and see, now everything is put on a disc somewhere gi- digitally, you know, so you can always call up these orchestrations. That's not true when you're digging through a box at uh, the Library of Congress looking at some old Gershwin score. It's, um, it's, it's you know, it's a very, very different process. Given that encores can do this work in the way it was originally done, and it is, as you've already said, almost impossible for Broadway to do it, is there the potential for it to be counterproductive to the future life of some of these old shows? Because people say, well, it was so glorious at encores, or encores just did it, that it might inhibit people from going back and trying to put these shows on. I think if you look at our history, probably just the opposite has happened. I mean, we did Call Me Madam, um, my first season as artistic director with Tyne Daly as the star, uh, recreating a role that was written for uh, Ethel, Ethel Merman. Call Me Madam is very difficult to revive only because it was a political satire at the time. It was really a, 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 a great sort of take on Pearl Mesta and the Truman and Eisenhower administrations. The jokes have no contemporary point of reference. You cannot update the show. It truly was a musical that lived and breathed in his time. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do it, because young people sitting in an audience today wouldn't even know what the jokes are. It's like pulling out a you know, sketch Pearl Mesta is hardly Pearl a household Mesta, name. Pearl hardly a household name. Exactly. And, but the score is fantastic, Irving Berlin score, and Tyne Daly was superior. Um, it also was the debut, uh, choreographic debut, of Kathleen Marshall, who just nailed it completely and then became, uh, who was the artistic director who succeeded me and has now become a great star director and choreographer in her own right. She's fantastic. So it was, a, it was a really remarkable event. We got to put forth this great Irving Berlin's score um, in a show that is almost impossible to revive. And yet what happened as a result of it is that I think Paper Mill Playhouse did it. And there were a couple of other productions that uh, happened as a result of it. I don't think that... Uh, I don't think that we've hurt one show <laughs> mm-hmm. or hurt the reputation of any show. Also, I think that what happens with encores is that the the classics, if you will, the rights holders and the estates are not likely to let us, are often reluctant to let us do those shows because they know there's going to be a major revival of Guys and Dolls, say. Or my fair lady, so it's it, that's a canon that we ordinarily don't really go after, or, and and we might have some uh, um, reluctance on the part of the estates who are waiting for a major revival of the of that list of shows. Um, 
I think that I don't think we've I don't think we've hurt the reputation or the possibility. I mean, we've created curiosity about certain. Well, again, I was never suggesting that it was the yeah. reputation; just the idea that you do them so well with such mm-hmm. extraordinary resources. But now let's go from your role as artistic director to your role as actor, because as you said, <laughs> you did appear in uh, in the Bye Bye Birdie a couple of seasons ago, and mm-hmm. of course you're you're in rehearsal now. Much is made of the incredibly accelerated time period in which the encore shows are put together and of course the achievement that's so amazing of what comes out of there as someone who was planning seasons directing shows yourself what was your experience when you were actually inside the show living through that process you created (laughs) as opposed to being saying oh come on you can do it I was sort of a little bit of what could I have been thinking (laughs) I'm surprised the actors didn't throw things at me um in fact, uh, you know, I've, I started prepping myself because I don't do this very often. I did this, uh, as I said, Bye Bye Birdie a few years ago. And I did a play a few years ago, David Ives' play at the Manhattan Theater Club called Polish Joke. But I don't – and I still do Garrison Keillor's show often. But we're reading off the page there because it's a radio show. Um, I started getting ready early. I, you know, I started to study my lines. Uh, I'm, I'm still struggling with them, but I didn't want to really just do this in a week uh, I was talking to John Rando the other day. John Rando, who's a fabulous director. I remember when we first brought him over to Encores, he did a sensational job. You would know him uh, from his incredible production of Urinetown on Broadway. But, uh, and all of David Ives' is all of David, many Dave, of them. Yes, and uh, that's where we first saw John's work, and we immediately invited him over to, to join us at Encores. Anyway, John, uh, I was talking to John the other day because he's directing Face the Music. And... Uh, we have always we have always described the process of encores as one week stock with the A team, because we have because we are in New York City, but because we've built such a wonderful uh, reputation, we get an extraordinary actors to to join us for these one week concerts. I remember when Tyne Daly she had such a wonderful time, and I said she said what can I do for you? And I said if if I call any of your friends. Just tell them to say yes, that we will protect them creatively and, and artistically and will not abuse or dis, uh, their celebrity. And, and I think we've held to that promise, evidenced by, did you see Follies, which was our last concert? I mean, it was an astonishing lineup mm-hmm. of people, uh, uh, abundant talent. Frankly, you could not gather that cast together for a Broadway revival. You couldn't afford that cast. But for two weeks, all those people said yes and delivered to the arts community in New York City an extraordinary reading of a very complicated and challenging, probably masterwork of the American Musical Theater. Well, that's how I was sitting watching that show. I was thinking the number of Tony winners up on stage performing you know, for mm-hmm. those five or six performances. I think they added one extra for Follies because it was so heavily sold. Mm-hmm. But you had like Donna Murphy and Victoria Clark and Victor Garber and uh, uh, just a whole slew of wonderful actors up on stage. Encore, I guess, has developed a reputation that it can attract that caliber of talent. We started that from the very beginning. I, I remember when I was asked to do Fiorello, which was the first uh, mm-hmm. concert at Encores, I said... I want to ask my friend Jerry Zachs to do this, to play Fiorello, because Jerry and I worked together as actors. I was in the original cast of Grease, as you, as you mentioned earlier, and Jerry was in the national company and then came in. And so we've known each other for a long time when we knew each other principally as actors. And his career has been amazing. And at that point, I mean, he probably had six Tonys as a director of many things, including Guys and Dolls and uh, House of Blue Leaves, on and on, an astonishing man and a great friend. And I said, let's ask Jerry, because Jerry right now is the mayor of Broadway. And if he says yes, mm-hmm. everybody else will say yes. So I asked Jerry, and he thought about it, and he said yes, which was a great gift to me, frankly, for, for him at that point to step away from his uh, uh, very celebrated directing career to come back on stage. He said yes. Once he said yes, I called up. Phil Bosco, Faith Prince, Adam Arkin, Greg Edelman, Donna McKechnie. Uh, I called the best of Broadway in roles that we could not have contracted them to do. And so I ended up with our very, very first concert was just a feast of Broadway's best. 
uh, multi, multi, multi Tony Award winning William Ivy Long uh, did the clothes for us. John Lee, John Lee Beatty, again, did the sets. Uh, an astonishing uh, bunch of people, all under the baton of, of uh, Rob Fisher. And Rob Fisher and I met uh, both on stage. We were in, a, we were in uh, Christopher Durang's History of the American Film on Broadway back in the mm-hmm. 70s. And also that opening night, a show based on a former mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia. You had the real mayor of New York doing a cameo. Yes, we had him do a crossover. <laughs> it was hilarious. It was uh, Giuliani, was it? Or Koch? Uh, no, it was Koch. 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 Ed Koch, yeah. yeah. He the, walked out. His honor walked down stage and brought down the house. One, one of the tallest mayors in New York history, portraying yeah. one of the shortest. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go from uh, encores and go back maybe to the beginning. You had wanted to be an accountant at one time. <laughs> and somebody but along the way... But that didn't work out? <laughs> didn't work out. <laughs> didn't work out. <laughs> somebody Along the way, one of your mentors talked you out of going into the priesthood. Yes. And fortunately, you ended up working in theater. How did all that happen? A guy growing up in New Jersey, going to school in Pennsylvania, ends up on Broadway. You know, I remember growing up in Scranton and standing on the porch when I was about four years old going, how do you get out of here? (laughs) (laughs) Not that there was anything wrong with Scranton, but uh, I just knew that um, it wasn't where I belonged. I wasn't quite clear. You know, I think... uh, no one. Um, all of my grandparents were Polish immigrants who came to northeastern Pennsylvania and mined coal. Hmm. So the idea of being in the arts was so foreign to them. I, I don't know why I had these interests, but I did. Uh, they were just they were just apparent to me. And I we had very very large families. I've got I think forty eight first cousins on one side of the wow. family and an equal number on you know. And there were none of them were interested in what I was interested. in. I remember getting a stereo in the in the seventh grade, and, and a relative worked at Capitol Records, and they gave me the soundtrack from Oklahoma, and I, I like I discovered something. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first went to college, I just I was a business major the first year because I wasn't sure what what I was going to do, and I got I, I stepped away from that, and then I majored in uh, literature and, and minored in philosophy, and a great mentor of mine, uh, a wonderful Jesuit a priest, Father Gannon, he's no longer with us. Late Father Gannon was a, a, my private confessor and my confidant, and and uh, he said to me, "You're not supposed to be a priest." He said, "You don't have the calling." I know it when I see it, and you don't have it. Go live your life. Hmm. And it was uh, he was a, it was a great, great insight for him to give to a young man sort of floundering around. And I did in the nice. We didn't have a theater school there, uh, so I finished that degree, and then I then I went to graduate school in uh, at the Catholic University of uh, of America, and uh, got my master's in theater, and. Um, it was a one that was a it was a real awakening. But during my time in college, I came to New York one day, and I saw a matinee of How to Succeed in Business, and an evening performance of a revival of The Glass Menagerie with the, the great Maureen Stapleton. And I just went, I'm coming back here, mm-hmm. and this is what I'm going to do. I knew it in my. I, I sat there at How to Succeed. I had to hold on to the chair, not to jump up onto the stage. I just knew that I had found what I wanted to do. And I had the good fortune to finish school and come here and be able to do it. Hmm. Well, let's jump right into certainly the first major Broadway show. There were a couple of productions that you were in that were short-lived, but but Grease. Mm-hmm. Looking at it from this perspective, everybody says, oh, my gosh, Grease, smash hit, big run. Was Grease an immediate breakout success back in 1972? Did people have a sense that this was was the next big thing, the way the producers landed or Guys and Dolls landed or something like that? You know, the interesting thing about Greece is that while we're I had I had done three bombs in a row, two of which had lasted like one night. Mm. Um, a Broadway show called Frank Marable, which last was my first Broadway show, and lasted one night first big off-Broadway show was a thing called Drat, which also lasted one night. And then I stood by for a rather beautiful show with Barbara Cook and Karen Morrow called The Grass Harp. Which got four nights. Which got four nights. And uh, and then I remember we were in rehearsal 
and the show was just uh, I thought it was going for, of, of Greece I'm talking about now I thought it was going for it badly and I just turned to Tom Moore the director and said I can't be in another bomb please help me the rehearsals were great great fun but you there was a lot of turmoil I mean uh, we we cut a major number excuse me we cut a major number after the first preview Several numbers weren't even staged. I remember we were doing Grease Lightning. We finally screamed to Pat, but you have to finish staging this number in front of an audience. And she, we staged it in an hour. We ripped out the sound system uh, during the first week of previews. And so who knew what we were in? But, but everybody kept working, but the, it was not without its challenges. And I don't think we had all of our money at the time. I remember somebody coming in from Chicago and putting up the last bit of money. But the thing that you knew from the very beginning is you couldn't keep the audiences away with a stick. The reviews weren't all that great, but the audience loved the show. Now, when we did it downtown, it was tougher and rougher and cruder, and it was a bunch of... It was really two gangs, from the, and, and it wasn't as, wasn't as pretty as the film or as pink or as... Uh, uh, it, was, it was a little cruder and raw, and it was great, great fun. Uh... And then when we when we moved to Broadway, they moved us to the Broad. The Schubert's moved us to the Broadhurst Theater because the theater was empty for the summer. We had opened at was what was the Eden Theater down on Second Avenue. We opened on Valentine's Day in 1972, hmm. and we played there through the spring. And then the Schubert's look, we were doing business, so they thought, well, we'll put them in the Broadhurst for the summer. They put us in the Broadhurst for the summer, and the business wouldn't stop, and they needed the Broadhurst, so they moved us around the corner to the Royale, where we sat for the next nine years, I think. Hmm. It didn't matter what the critics thought of the show. The show is not the kind of piece of art that's going to send the critics' uh, hats in the air. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I remember one sort of didn't even understand what the title was. I forget who it was. He said he thought the show was called Grease because there was a car in it called Grease Lightning. He didn't even get the reference to the hair tonic and all that stuff. Um, but audiences loved it. And I think it was one of those shows, there, there have been many of those shows, I think Hair was one of them, where suddenly you have a groupie audience where they not only are there, they keep coming back and they keep coming back and they bring their friends. And um, so I don't think you ever know that you're in the middle of... Uh, theatrical history in some ways. You're just hanging out with your friends, doing the best you can, and just loving it. But when did it dawn on you, the other cast members, that suddenly it was something that was happening that was going to run for a while? Oh, suddenly, when we were doing the album, when we were doing the Mike Douglas show, and we were on the Tony Awards, it was clear that we weren't going anywhere. Uh-huh. And and the pre-sale started to happen, and groups started to happen, and we were, and there were, there were no empty seats in the house. It was pretty clear. <laughs> As a member of that original company, what's your perspective as you look at certainly that long Broadway run, the movie, the first revival, now this this uh, competition to cast people? Do you do you still feel a connectedness to that? And how do you feel about these later iterations of, of the show that you were part of creating? Well, you know, I I think you take I think you take an ownership. Because you were there when it, when you were figuring it out, I, I, you know, as someone who is uh, who was replaced and also been an original cast, you can never take away from that original company the instinct they brought or even the questions they asked, because they helped make the thing what it was. And and that original company and I, all of us, we we bonded in a way, you know, that we still connect. I think there there are many of those shows where. There are no stars, and there's nothing but a bunch of new peers. Godspell was like that. Chorus Line was like that. Grease was like that. There were no grown-ups. You were all the same age. You all got off the bus. Half of you got your equity card to do the show, and you became a pack. And I, I, I bet all of those original people are, in, are still in touch with each other on those shows as well. You bond in a way that... Um, that other shows don't. I mean, I still talk to Barry and Jim Canning come over with his wife and kids this summer, and I'm Adrian's having dinner with me next week. Adrian Barbeau, Barry Boster, Jim right, Canning. Right, right. So that you know, we're, we're we're we became family, 
and we don't see each other all the time, but we're, we connected something magical happened to all of us at the same time that makes us giddy. Tom Moore, the original director, I, I just saw him last month. We're still very... Um, the last iteration of the show, the, uh, I, I thought, was a bit off the mark, frankly, but it was a big success because the audience loved it. Uh, and I can't. Li- I look forward to what Kathleen does. I think Kathleen's a smashing talent, and I think that she'll bring a joy and an exuberance and a liveliness to it that's just going to make it a hit all over again. I don't know how I feel about the the the. I don't like the idea that America is going to cast Broadway as an ongoing thing. I think it's an interesting phenomenon, but I don't think it's a model for the way Broadway develops work. Uh, but it's a wonderful sort of popular social event right now, and and if it if it brings a fresh audience to the theater and a new audience to the theater, so be it. God bless. But um, I really don't want America telling me who I should cast in the show. Well, I don't envy Kathleen's position. But also I'm sure she'll figure it out. Look at it from the point of view of getting Millions of people exposed to it each and every week for several months, uh, even before performance. I saw first Charlotte Wilcox yeah. last night, uh, the, who's the company general manager, and she said the ticket sales are fantastic. Yeah, great publicity. It's a great, great yeah. marketing tool. Um, so, you know, uh, in some ways, it's I still feel con- I still feel great ownership of being part of the original cast, and yet it's it's sort of beyond me. Uh, the interesting thing about it, though, I remember the show was running about four years when the film came out, and the film was fantastic, and we thought it would kill the show. And what it did was it brought new energy to the show because there, all across the America, in every newspaper and on every station, was an ad for Greece, and it gave the kind of focus that you can a Broadway producer could never could never afford. So when the film of Chicago was coming out, everybody said, oh, aren't you worried the film's going to take the show? And I said, no, no, no. If we have the same good luck that happened with Greece, mm-hmm. what it will do is it will reignite that title, which is exactly what it did. It was, And again, it was a wonderful film, very different to the stage version, but Rob Marshall did a fantastic job with the film. And what it did is it gave whole new audiences interested in interest in the Broadway title and our, our businesses uh, flourished again I think as a result of that and inevitably the film and the show are not the same thing no, not at and all. we should take an opportunity to play a song which features you from the original cast album of the original Grease, which is not in the film. Could you set up <laughs> this song for us? And also set up the character, Roger, that you play. I think Roger, on a good day, they called me Roger, but my nickname in the show was Rump and Lardass, and uh, only because my claim to fame was that I was the mooning champ of Rydell High. And I had the great good fortune with Garn Stevens to sing... Uh, mooning in the original Broadway cast of uh, of Greece. A song from the original 1972 production of Greece called Mooning, featuring our guest today, Walter Bobby. Walter, between Greece and Guys and Dolls, is a kind of a long span of time, about 20 years. What were you doing during that time before you were on stage in Guys and Dolls as Nicely Nicely Johnson? I was doing. I, I continued to act, uh-huh. um, and I had the good fortune of uh, of working with a lot of wonderful people. Even when I wasn't involved with successes as uh, as breakout or as uh, as as full bodied, say as Grease or Guys and Dolls, I, I did wonderful things. Um, uh, I also th- there came a point where I also wanted to do stuff other than musicals, and so I stopped auditioning for musicals for a while, and so I got to do. Shaw's Getting Married at Circle in the Square. I got to do Driving Miss Daisy. I started to do a lot of television, Law and Order, and L.A. Law, and Hill Street Mm -hmm. Blues, and blah, 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 because I had done so much of that musical comedy thing that I wanted to stretch my muscles as an actor, uh, as as a non-musical actor, uh, so that the community could find other uses, other ways to employ me, but also just for uh, for my own creative development. Um, I also did a bunch. Of, I, I also did things like go to the Humana Festival and, and, and do some new plays. That wonderful new play festival out in Louisville. Uh, I did the Sundance Play uh, Festival both as an actor and as a director for a few seasons. And we were out there. You know, we were working like on uh, on Perestroika, the second part of the 
of the uh, Angels in America. We're working on Kentucky Cycle. So even I was always involved with fantastic projects uh, and very, very good directors. Um, they did History of the American Film is where I met the, the wonderful American playwright Christopher Durang. Uh, on Broadway, and where I met Rob Fisher, who was mm. the pianist on stage in that play. And Susie Kurtz played my wife. So that even some of these shows that were not great hits, I was working with incredible people. Uh, uh, and uh, so I've always... Uh, I've I've always had the good fortune to work in the theater. I've actually never done anything else. I never had to be a waiter or do whatever those things you do. I actually just did other things. Which is kind of unusual in your business. Yeah. Well, in this period, it would seem that the seeds of your being a director must have been sown because while we haven't spoken about Guys and Dolls yet, it was very shortly after Guys and Dolls that you were doing A Grand Night for Singing. So where did the transition to directing actually come? I had always wanted to do it, and and it, it's hard to re-identify yourself uh, in this business. People use you for what you can use and whatever what, you, what they've seen you do less. So if you really want to do that, you have to take it upon yourself. I know there was a point where I was uh, – I really wanted to do some other kind of acting. As I said, some of the – some more serious things or non-musical things. And uh, I remember making the decision not to do commercials because um, – it's very difficult for casting directors to see you on television being the goofy husband going, how'd you make it so lemony, honey? And then trying to get an audition to do Shaw, you know? So I stopped that. And I swear the minute I stopped that, um, this other work came to me. Uh, those are just, I mean, you know, a career is a very personal thing. Um, what had there, there were then there was a period where I did a bunch of things actually for uh, for Jerry Sachs. He called me to replace in that wonderful production of uh, Anything Goes. He did Lincoln Center, and I went into he played that. Lord Le- Lord Evelyn, Lord that. Evelyn, yeah. And then shortly thereafter, he was doing the original production of Assassins, and uh, Terry Mann had to leave the production for a while because of a commitment. And Jerry asked me if I would go into that. Uh, show for a while, the original production of Assassins. And I said, well, if you'll put me in, I'll do it. And he did. Um, And then I remember when the casting director called my agent about, my agent called me about Guys and Dolls, because the part is usually played by, you know, a substantial a a big guy. A short chubby guy. A short chubby guy. I mean, you know. Or a uh, big chubby guy. A big chubby guy. But Stubby K kind of made that an iconic look for the part. And I said to to my agent, does Jerry know about this? And they said, yeah, Jerry wants to see you. So I went in, and 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 once again, um, uh, there was Jerry, you know, just uh, giving, uh, helping me reinvent this incredibly um, significant part with three great songs in what became just a classic revival. When when I was in that show, I had this opportunity to direct. I finally try, stopped trying to direct because it just wasn't working out. I had a couple off-Broadway things that never fully financed. And finally, I just thought, you know what? If what I'm supposed to do is sing and dance on Broadway, I'll just say thank you and go to work. Anyway, in the middle of Guys and Dolls, uh, they called about doing this review at the Rainbow and Stars over at Rockefeller Center. Which was a cabaret space. Which was a cabaret space, yep. And I really wanted to do it. And that's when I knew I that I really wanted to direct. It wasn't just something to do when I was out of work because there I was in a great revival with a fantastic role singing Sit Down Your Rock in the Boat every night. And I went to Jerry and I said, Jerry, will you give me a three-week leave of absence to do this? And Jerry did not have to, and he allowed it. And it changed my life because for some reason, every New York critic came to that little review uh, Ted Chapin, who heads the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, met with me and approved me as the director. And suddenly the press said I was a director. And then suddenly I was doing a Chris Durang play here and a play at the Manhattan Theater Club. And I was asked to do Fiorello at Encores. And I became the artistic director. So it was something that I, I always wanted to do. And people said, you know, you should do it, you should do it. But when it happened, it happened quickly. Now, the good thing was that when the opportunity came along, all those people who said, if you ever get a chance, I'll call me, I called them because I had 
20 years of working on Broadway so I could actually pick up the phone and call Jerry Zachs and Tony Walton and Faith Prince and Peter Gallagher and Patti Lapone And these were my, I, my pals, my colleagues, happened to be the most elegant roster of people in New York City. And I said, okay, I got the gig. Come. And one after another, they came and allowed me to change my life. I remember when we were doing, when we were doing, um, I had done Guys and Dolls, for example, with Peter Gallagher. And when I was doing uh, Pal Joey at Encores, I called Terrence McNally, who was a friend of mine, to do the adaptation. I went up, I called Patti Lapone. I called Peter Gallagher. He called me from a, 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 a film shoot at a prison in Kentucky. He said, what do you want? And I said, I want you to do Pal Joey. He said, I'll call you in 24 hours. So you spent years building your Rolodex. I didn't know I was you, doing but it. But you weren't out there directing MAME at the, no, you know, I never had to, or Wisconsin no. or anywhere else. It was, I never had to do that. Hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It never interested me. It didn't interest me as an actor either. Hmm. I, I came to New York to be a New Yorker. I didn't come to New York so that I had a closet I mean, I you know I was offered shows on the road. It doesn't suit me. There's no, there, I, I, I now as a director, I value people who like to do that, and we'll go out and do it. But it's I'm a real nester. That is not my temperament at all. But no, I didn't have to go and do those uh, those things. And uh, uh, and I had the good fortune when opportunity came my way to have twenty years of relationships who all stepped up and helped me. And again, in the theater business, never being forced to wait tables, also not being forced to leave New York in order to come back to New York. Right. You were able to yeah. work your way up in New yeah. York. So let's talk a little bit more about Guys and Dolls before we move on. Sure. You played Nicely Nicely Johnson. Yes. Fat suit to make you look a little bit heavier, or, or you just played it no, as yourself? No, but there was a moment, I got to tell you, you know, we were having a hard time figuring it out because it was it's a bi- it was a big change for me to do it because actually I'm, I, I'm, I, I was thinner than I am right now, which is not all that thin, uh, but... That's another conversation. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and I remember uh, Jerry got nervous before we left the rehearsal room and said, would you wear a fat suit? And I said, no, if it's about fat, it's, it, it can't be about that because he had made a really big casting decision when he cast me and J.K. Simmons to sort of play the guys uh-huh. and that put Ernie Sabella, who looks like he should be playing nicely, nicely as Benny Southstreet. So he had made these decisions and I said, no. The interesting thing is the original cast in Roger and Greece was supposed to be a fat guy, too. <laughs> and I remember the fourth callback, the director came out and said to me, would you wear a fat suit? And I said, no, it's never about fat. Fat's not funny. If it's funny, it's funny. If not, whatever. So there have been, been two major roles <laughs> on Broadway where... I was supposed to be fat, and I wasn't. Well, and guy, I didn't wear the suit. Well, Guys and Dolls, I don't think there's a bad song in the show. Every no, song is a little gem that Frank Lesser wrote. But one of the real showstoppers is one that you perform, Sit Down, You Rock on the Boat. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the song, and I'd like to play it. Well, it's probably it's probably one of the best set-up songs uh, in Broadway history because usually uh, at that point in the show, it's what's called the 11 o'clock spot. You know, you set a character up all night, and then 11 o'clock, after all the stars, where the stars need a rest and are putting on their finale costumes, you get to go out there and stop the show. The interesting thing about the part is that he doesn't have all that much to say during the evening, but what he sings is the fugue for tin horns. I got the horse right here. Then, middle of the second, first act, he and uh, and and Benny sing uh, uh, the title song "Guys and Dolls" and deep into the second act. So you, uh, as a singer, you're so well. So your character, because in a musical, what sets you up is what you sing, and you've had two classic songs to sing. And then there you are on the mission. There's tension in the room. Everybody's the the entire plot is being turned at that moment, and. And you get and 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 Nathan Nathan Detroit punches you in the arm and says, "Save the day!" And you get up there and sing one of the great songs in the American theater uh, canon. I mean, Frank Lesser, as you said, uh, Howard. There's not a there's not a bad lyric in that show. There's not, a, there's not a false note or lyric in that show. It's flawless writing. And in that production, we should also say the staging. How much was Jerry Zachs and it was Chris Chadman, right? Yeah, the, the late Chris Chadman. Incredibly tightly 
controlled number in an interesting way for something so exuberant. What happened is, that I, and I'm sure that it was Chris Chadman, our choreographer, and, and Jerry Sachs and Tony Walton brilliantly working together because the show was very expansive, big open spaces, beautifully painted drops all night. And suddenly when we got to the mission set, it was the tightest, most cramped set in the state. In, uh, in the entire show, and we were all in there at the same time with vivid, it like it was like confetti stuffed into a corner, mm-hmm. and so the tension, theatrically that was uh, there was fantastic. And Chris, knowing that I, w- I I like moving around on stage, but never really consider myself a dancer, sort of let me, you know, wiggle and English it up in a way that, <laughs> that felt organic to me and didn't sort of make me really dance, you know. Well, let's dance along with you, musically speaking. Listen to that number, the 11 o'clock number. Sedan, you're rocking the boat. I'd love to. Of course, Frank Lesser's wonderful Sedan, you're rocking the boat. Walter Bobby, our guest today, playing the role of Nicely Nicely Johnson back in 1992, the revival of Guys and Dolls on Broadway. Mm -hmm. With Faith Prince and Nathan Lane. And And Peter Gallagher. And Peter Gallagher. Let's not forget him. (laughs) We spoke earlier about A Grand Night for Singing, which came out of Rainbow and Stars and quickly put you on the Broadway map. And it really was just a couple of years to that production of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Again, it being encores, only the second year of encores even, the I think, third. maybe the third. And no expectation. It was going to be a five-night concert, as encores had been. When did the idea of it being something more come into your life and become so much a part of your life? Was it immediate? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, how do I say this? In the summer, I would read, do a lot of reading, trying to figure out what we would do the next season. Uh, that was uh, that was first and foremost. And I remember sitting there watching the OJ trial and reading Chicago and thinking, "Oh my God." This show feels like it was written today. It felt that everything that had happened in the past 20 years in terms of popular culture and the media was somehow absorbed in the public consciousness in a way that Chicago resonated in a different way than it did in 75. Because as I've said in the past, you know, it, it was it was this bleak satire of America, and then it just sort of turned into a documentary. And even remembering that its original source material, Roxy Hart, goes back decades prior to the musical. Yes, indeed. The other thing that happened is once I took over as artistic director of Encores, I was supposed to direct the next production. And as I started to work on the series, I, I fired myself as a director because I thought, you know, I need to get the series focused properly. And I decided to to make it my – to not let this be my own little house where I just – I don't want to be the house director. And so although I had directed the first one, those next two years, I basically invited other directors. And I wanted to make sure that I knew how to produce and support other directors and didn't turn Encores into a vanity house for me. Hmm. And I think it was a very, very smart decision uh, for Encores and for me. But by the time we got to the third season, I thought, I need a show for me. And so I was also looking for something for me. I've always thought that Chicago was an amazing score. And though it now is very, very famous, it did not have a great afterlife. And and I thought, and frankly, at that point in Encore's history, a lot of the people on my on our board weren't fond of the idea. They didn't think Chicago, Chicago wasn't that big a hit at the time. It wasn't old enough. We should be doing Gershwin while you're doing this show. It's only 20 years old. And I said, I really think it's a masterful score. And so did Rob Fisher and Judith Jacob said, then go. But initially, the response to the idea was not, not as... Um, uh, of uh, supportive as you might imagine now in retrospect, but once it happened, uh, it was thrilling. And then one, th- and there again, in terms of being able to call up people, uh, to be able to call because I'd called, I'd known Jimmy Norton since I stood by for "I Love My Wife" back in the seventies, um, if not before then. BB uh, Newworth had done uh, "Pal Joey" for us. Um, to be able to call and to have Joel Gray, Jimmy Naughton, B.B. Newworth, and Anne Ranking in a revival of Chicago was, there was no auditioning. You just, Jay Bender and I sat down and we said, this is what we should do. 
because we wanted it to be as much a... We did not want to remount Fosse's production. We wanted to use Chicago to be a tribute to his broader and longer career so that it looked like a Bob Fosse show but was not, in fact, his production. And so everyone who was there, including Joel, had some sort of... They brought his spirit onto the stage with him. Many of the dancers, all of the dancers, I think, at some point had worked with or known Fosse. And so... And Anne very wisely took the credit of choreographing it in the style of Fosse so that we had both the liberty to um, to morph it to our own needs and at the same time not step away from that great vocabulary that was unique and original and his. Um, we were just down the hall doing our work. I mean, I, I know that John Lee and I and Ken Billington t- and, 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 and William Ivy Long talked a long time about the concept for this thing. And I know you just look up there and you think, well, it's just, you know, abandoned some underwear. But getting to those decisions, doing doing something, m- m- getting rid of everything, getting rid of props, doing, making something minimal, takes a, a, it's a very rigorous exercise. And so now it seems inevitable but at the time, it was a great it was a great creative exercise for all of us. I think there was what, what was wonderful about it is that there was no expectation. Anne and I were down the hall. Rob was doing things. We were we were putting on a show that we always loved, and we wanted to bring it back to life. We did the dress rehearsal, and I, I, I it was unbelievable the response. I've never I've never seen or heard anything like that in my life, and I've been around some pretty fancy opening nights. I know Fred Ebb was there. He didn't know what, what happened because Fred just... We met with Fred and John a couple of times. They gave us the rights. They wanted to know about casting. They weren't part of the process of the rehearsal. They showed up for the dress rehearsal. And the, and the audience erupted. I think it's a wonderful production. I'm very proud of the entire creative team, my work with Anne, um, everybody, uh, everybody's contribution. But there was also something about the timing. I think that we revived it at the right time because what's happened in the past 20 years to the abuse of celebrity, the manipulation of the law courts, the difference between the truth, justice, and right and wrong, all of these, uh, all of these themes we live with every day. Uh, and so I think the show just captured the public imagination in a way that it couldn't in 1975. But also, and I was there the opening night, the Thursday night, um, I think the limitations of encores worked to your advantage. You made the limitations work to your advantage, putting the band right up on stage. You were forced to. That's the way the encore series is staged, with the band, the orchestra up on stage. The limited amount of scenery, the limited amount of costume, that sort of thing, you actually turned that into an advantage. I think it probably well, helped start, the show. When, when John Lee and I started talking about what the themes of the show were, we kept talking about how the theme is not only just about people being trapped in prison, but trapped by their own ambition, their own mm-hmm. greed, their own passions. And so now you look, and we said, let's put the band in a jury box. So that whole thing, so it wasn't just putting the band on stage. We were trying to find visual metaphors. I mean, no one thinks of these things when we see, but I remember when we said, we're not just going to put the band on stage, we're going to trap the band. We're never going to leave the, let the cast leave the stage. We're going to trap the cast on the stage. Nobody thinks about these things when you, when you see it. But what I know is that we created an environment which, which enhanced the tension uh, and became a visual metaphor for what the central themes, I think, of the show are. And uh, and also a lot of things that we wanted to do, we wanted to pay tribute to Fosse. I remember the first time I ever saw a ladder on a proscenium was when Tony Walton delivered it for Fosse in Pippin, and I thought, let's use that idea. It wasn't in his production, but doing some of the Brechtian things. They were all culled from various images and ideas throughout his career, and somehow they fed... This so that when you look up there and you say, "Well, everybody's in black," and but but it 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 actually was a wonderful creative process um, that happened that that uh, allowed that nothing up there to work. And it also forced the audience to concentrate on the characters and on the storyline and on the music rather than looking at scenery and staging and all that because you simplified it so much to the point of that's what you had to focus on whether you wanted to or not. Yeah. Well, we didn't want to be, you know, site-specific and we didn't want to have people have changed costumes. I wanted to 
because the first, the original production was a series of vaudeville scenes, and every scene was a tribute to a very to a different performer. But anyway, we had a, we had a, we had it was pure uh, alchemy when we were working on that. Unfortunately, our time's drawing to a close, and there's so much we haven't talked about: Footloose, Twentieth Century, Sweet Charity. But I want to ask specifically: We've talked about your transition from an actor to a director, the different things you've found yourself able to do. You and I had the opportunity to work together a few years ago on a show that you had written, Road to Hollywood, which was done in workshop at the O'Neill and then on the second stage at Goodspeed. Writing, directing, acting, what would you like to be doing next? What's either planned for or where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? Well, I like to go where I feel useful. I mean, I, I, when they called me to do Face the Music, I thought, you know, I'm free right now. I just opened a, a new show and I'm free. And I, I was in the mood to do this. And so I'm very, very happy to do it. I, I said to my agent after I did this last big show, and of course we did all these White Christmases, um, uh, these big productions of White Christmas, I said, I, next year I really want to do some small plays. I want to be in a room with, you know, three actors and two folding chairs. I did a little play by David Ives at EST this year called The Other Woman, and I had such an exciting time. So for me, you know, the things that have come my way recently that have been offered to me haven't interested me so much. So I'm doing a lot of readings and what I hope to be doing next year, and it looks like, although I can't say what yet, some of those things are happening. I really want to do some small plays at some of the not-for-profit theaters around town so that I don't have the pressure of a $10 million budget on my back, but I can really go back into the sandbox, which is where I was when I did Chicago or when I've done a lot of my work, and just deal with uh, some more challenging themes right now. So I've been doing a lot of readings around town, and hopefully that's what I'll be doing next year. A bunch of new plays. Well, that brings us back to Encores. Let me just uh, give the dates. Encores, second show of this current season, Face the Music, the Irving Berlin Moss Hart Show. First performance is this Thursday. Last performance, five shows later, is this <laughs> Sunday. They're all weekend, yeah. Five performances over four <laughs> days. You're in the middle of rehearsal now. So, Walter, Bobby, thanks so much for being with us today on oh, Downstage Center. Thanks. Thank you so much. Good to see you, Howard. Thanks, Walter. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online on demand for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.